Welcome to Unboard, unplugged, unscripted board leadership. A conversation between boardroom leaders that covers leadership, priorities, and influence. Now, here's Brian Hayward. I'm joined today from Galway, Ireland, entrepreneur, uh, Senator Hadrick O'Kady. Uh-huh. You and I happen to be riding up an elevator in a building, and I we're obviously in the same place, and I'm saying, so what brings you to this place, time, uh, et cetera, besides the fact I invited you to the podcast? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be here. I really appreciate it. So... We're up in the elevator. We don't have long to go. We've only got maybe 30 seconds. And <laughs> what brings me here? So actually, in everything I do to try and make a positive difference in the world, to me, to my family. Uh, so that's it in there is one sentence to make a positive difference. So when did you realize that you wanted to make a positive difference in the world? Where, what was the first recollection you might have where you went, that's, that was uh, something where I made a difference and I'm going to try to do more of that? Yeah. Uh, I suppose it started off at a, at a really, really early age. And a positive difference, you can make positive differences in many different ways. And as you go through life, the area you focus on in relation to making a positive difference changes. Uh, I came from a very working class background. My parents left school mm-hmm. by the age of 10, immigrated to England. So um, for me, in order to get my first bicycle, I had to go down to the sea and pick these little shellfish and sell them on the market. So that was a positive difference for me. So it was taking action to do something. And uh, rather than waiting for it to happen, to actually go and make it happen. And then when I was playing sport, playing football and, and so on as a young teenager, was actually to make a real positive difference to the team. So um, it was really about contribution to the team. And to the greater we won, and to the disappointing we lost, but I would be more hurt if I let my if I let the team down. So mm-hmm. it was really about making a difference. And then going right through college, I wanted to do the best I could in exams. I, I studied business and commerce in college in Galway. And then I worked with a firm called KPMG, uh, an accountancy firm. And I realized pretty quickly there that, um, I realized pretty quickly, uh, Brian, that I wasn't, uh, numbers was not my game. I actually discovered that really, my passion was people, dealing with people rather than dealing with numbers. So it was, I was not, I'm not an abstract type of person. I, a person would like to dive in and engage with people. I'm at my best when I'm engaging with people. And that was a big realization. And a lot of people I met afterwards who stayed in accountancy, I'm also a lawyer uh, who worked in law, said, hey, Porik, you're lucky you got out. I said, no, I just decided to go out. And, and unfortunately, Brian, too many people stay in the same space and the same rut, as were, without actually allowing themselves to flower and to grow and to flourish and, and actually to make a real difference for themselves, their family and the world. So picking shells and uh, to, to buy a bicycle, is, is that, I, that would be the start of your entrepreneurial career. I would, I would suspect. 
It probably was, but to be totally honest with you, I I I, I won Ireland's Entrepreneur of the Year a good few years ago, and I represented Ireland in the World EY Entrepreneur of the Year in Monaco, and. I remember winning the Irish Entrepreneur of the Year, and I need, I wanted to ask somebody, what does an entrepreneur mean? Well, I was just going to ask you that. Because if, you, if yeah, you're well, actually, if you've won the award and you're actually a judge for the world entrepreneurs or the Euro division of that, you must have more than I do a, a definition or what, what, what is an entrepreneur? Yeah, well, I've, I've, I've learned since because I'm engaged with many, many entrepreneurs. And entrepreneurs, really, bottom line, what it's about for them, it's actually making the world a better place than the one they found in a particular area. So it's, it's actually making a difference and making a real positive difference. So their motivator, the real bottom line motivator is not money. It's not about the more money they make. It's about the difference they make and the legacy they leave so that the world is a better place as a result of their being involved in something rather than otherwise. And so I take great comfort in that because I'm not really great with numbers either. And uh, so I, I think there's something there that yet, even at this advanced stage, that, that I don't need to know the numbers in order to be successful or, or, or make a difference in business. But yeah, I, I was curious because, you know, when we had a brief conversation the other day, you were talking about being in the airline business. And, and I, I thought, you know, being entrepreneur in airlines, it's, most of the time, airlines are a disaster. How, how did you succeed in, in, in that industry? Well, <laughs> if, I, if I knew then what I know now about aviation, I would not have got into it is maybe a one-sentence short answer. So I went into aviation pretty blind, uh, other than the fact that no bank manager would give me any money. I had no experience in it, and I could not employ experienced staff because they say, who's this crazy Irishman starting an airline? He doesn't know anything about airlines. So, so you're, blind, uh, you're blind leading the blind. <laughs> so. I was, I was, absolutely. So I, I, I... It was just a passion, and in actual fact, it was a passion part of Ireland I'm from, and maybe some of your viewers or listeners have been to Ireland, uh, might have been to the west of Ireland, where I'm from. Uh, actually, Gaelic is our first language, not, not English, so I'm speaking my second language here now. But um, I wanted to connect the regions of Ireland, and I wanted the regions of Ireland to have broadly, within limits, of course, a similar access as you have in and out of our capital city, Dublin. And the road infrastructure in Ireland has improved since, but it was quite poor then, uh, maybe 20 years ago or so. And so I created air access to overfly Dublin. So from the regions into the UK, the regions into Northern France, and so on and so forth. So I just on a blank page started creating a visual model of what I felt a regional airline should look like. And uh, went from there and I happened to get some people who some of them had never worked in aviation. Uh, some of them had. Um, some of them were at retirement level and just wants to try something different. And uh, they... 
they all came on board with me and they bought into this vision. And uh, then it wasn't my vision anymore. It was our vision and my role. I was just part of the team. Uh, I, I didn't have the most important part of the team because I didn't fly the airplanes. I didn't fix the airplanes. I didn't market the airline. My role was to bring the team together and work on creating uh, future leaders within the team. So support people and actually believe in that they could achieve a lot more than what they realized themselves they could achieve and to create the environment for that achievement. You're involved with, in, in, with CEO and other, and other organizations where, where you've been a coach. Uh, and I, I do that as well. And there's a couple of overlaps in, in our personal experiences that we were, we were talking about the other day, but uh, like what, what are the parallels in your estimation between sports coaching and, and coaching in business? Um, I just said two things about that, Brian. One is, I, I often hear, and I'm sure you do as well, I have to grow my company or I have to grow my business. Mm -hmm. I have never seen a company grow. I've never seen a business grow. Companies do not grow. People grow. Mm -hmm. So what you do as a coach, you create the environment and create the confidence level so people have got the self-belief within which they can actually grow and achieve more than what they ever realized. And that's their, that's their sweet spot. Let's put it like that. So that is very, very similar in a, in a, in a sporting environment, that you actually create the environment within which you empower people to believe in themselves, to actually achieve more, to break the barriers down that they have set in their top six inches. Because the difference between winning and losing in sport it's not the physical exercise people do because it's so similar. It's not the diets people eat or don't eat. The difference between winning and losing, very often, the gold medal and the person who comes eighth or tenth in the 100 meters uh, sprint in the Olympics, it's actually the top six inches. It's that there. And that's what the coaching that I have a passion for, uh, that's the area that it's in. So if you, if you met me and I said, oh, I, you know, Padraig, I'd, I'd like you to be my coach. Where would you start? Like, cause you, you would, you, how do you deal with somebody that you don't really know and then get them to grow? Is, is it, is there a methodology that you have that, that you find is, that is work for you? Yeah, I, I, there's a couple of things. First of all, there has to be, let's call it, a level of synergy and trust and belief mm. between me and the person I'm coaching. It's not a bad reflection on me or the person I'm coaching if that's not there, because there's just the individual chemistry that's really, really important. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing. The second thing that's really important is one word, integrity. Because integrity builds trust and trust builds openness in relation to conversation and laying everything on the table. So you need to develop that. The next thing from my point of view, I'd like to know a little bit about the person's background, how they got to where they, get to where they are now, where they want to get to, uh, what's driving them forward, and actually more importantly, what's holding them back. 
sometimes, very often, people don't realize what's holding them back. It takes you a while to uh, unwrap that, that part. And then you kind of say, okay, this is holding you back. Why is this holding you back? What can we do to actually change it? What would it look like if you were the gold medal winner? Mm-hmm. Or um, if you played in the Stanley Cup winning team, for example. So I, I would introduce a little bit of, I suppose, visualization in relation to that. Another part within who are your key, I'll use the term business term here, uh, who normally use in coaching is what are, who are your key stakeholders? Who are right. the people that are really important to actually help you achieve? So do you have, you could be running a hundred meters sprint, but you've got a team around you. Do you have the best possible team around you that you can have? Are there any weaknesses in it? Can you strengthen it? Because very often the team you have around you can actually help you achieve that success or maybe just hinder it so that you're a fraction of a second from first to last place in a 100-meter sprint. So it, it's, it's a combination of those factors. But it starts, the key element is the whole factor of trust and integrity, and it rolls on from there. And actually, the most important thing is to listen, to really, really, really listen, and then to ask the, the right question at the right time. You could ask the right question at the wrong time, which could be an explosion. Or you could ask the yeah. wrong question at the right time, which can be an explosion. And that's really of the sense of the, let's call it the dance you do with the person you're coaching. Where are the movements? What's happening here? Did this person have a late night? What's what's the situation with this person? Yeah, the dance. I, I was actually just—I have a quote on my wall. I just—I couldn't exactly. But you know, there's a there's a there's a um, a graphic that I used in my book from Harvard that talks about the spectrum from consulting, where you provide the answer and you get paid for the answer, and therapy, which is something where you're you're getting into somebody's psyche and. And, and, and the sweet spot in coaching is somewhere in the middle between those two extremes. So have you ever felt uncomfortable with the, because you're in effect being a therapist? Um, I never saw myself as being a therapist and I've never contacted anybody or marketed myself in relation to offering coaching service. So I've been approached by some Irish Olympic athletes and, and well-known sports people in relation to uh, maybe just being there for them and to listen and, and to be a sounding board. So I would do that. Um, I suppose the formal term for it would be, would be coaching. But if I want to just separate kind of coaching a little bit from it, I do not want to give them the answers. The answers have to come from them. Yeah. I can ask the questions, but the answers have to, because they're the people who have to live with those answers. So it's got, it's got to be part of their DNA. If it is, they're going to action the action points that come from the answers that they give me from the questions I, I give them. And 
the most important person they're accountable to, it's not to me, is to themselves. Yeah. And that self-accountability means an awful lot. And particularly to um, sports people and, and, and many business people who are really, really high performers. And they are much stricter and tougher on themselves than they are on their on anybody else. Mm-hmm. Or maybe their pet dog or pet cat. They treat them better than they treat themselves. So one of the things I try and do is to get them to, I suppose, love themselves and not to be too hard on themselves because being too hard on yourself can create an element of stress outside of your comfort zone, which to me is in your danger zone. And in that danger zone, you're actually your performance going up and in the danger zone, it starts going down, down. And you cannot say why. I'm training harder than ever. I'm really putting a huge effort in. I'm eating the right stuff. I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to do. But the problem, the curve turns down is you're too hard on yourself. So it's probably a great segue because I was, you know, the, the limited research I did was off of LinkedIn and the things that you've posted or reposted. And, and uh, so I was actually quite surprised because I, I think I've got the story right, but you can correct me that you actually had a heart attack, which was stress induced. And, and so 100%. that's part of the whole, the whole framework that you're just talking about, right? That you exactly. need to actually have some element of, of taking care of yourself or, or loving yourself to put it in your words, right? Yeah, a hundred percent. And actually it has got far greater impact on people I coach when they know my background, they know where I'm coming from. And they learn and they understand some of the mistakes that I've made, that I've learned about. And I can actually share some of those with them and hopefully get them to see, hey, I'm not going to make that mistake. So you're so right and well well picked up there, Brian. That particular piece that I'm after sharing comes from my own deep experience of having a heart attack and my heart stopped. So I was clinically on the other on the other side. Um, Not in North America. (laughs) No, I mean, I mean, I don't like, it's it's not easy for me to say it. I was clinically dead and that got me back, fortunately. And um, that's it. I've had 10 or 11 years of amazing life that 99% of the people don't have. So I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate. I'm very, very, very blessed and feel very privileged. I'm very lucky. I mean, it's probably an obvious question, but I I would imagine that you you adjusted post heart attack in what you did, or or were you aware at the as you were having the heart attack that there was the the stress was actually the the thing that was uh, driving some bad things to be happening inside your body, or no? I actually I think most of us think that the stress level of stress we're under is a natural thing for where we're at in life or, or, or that's the way life is. And I genuinely felt I was, I was quite fit. I ran the New York Marathon seven or eight months beforehand. I was in the gym that morning. I hardly ever drank. I never smoked. I, I keep very, very fit. I had a full medical, including cardiology, about six months before I got the heart attack. So I was doing everything I thought right, but 100% it was down to stress. And after they, they put in some stents and, and afterwards, 
um, the cardiologist who, who did the procedure, uh, he said to me, people who I see, who he sees, they who get heart attacks, it's for one of five or six reasons. It's hereditary. They're overweight. They don't exercise. They take drugs or cigarettes. Or stress. Mm. You're not in any one of those first four categories. It is stress. He said to me, next time, you may well not be so lucky. If you're overweight, I'd ask you to lose weight. Uh, if you drank too much alcohol, I'd tell you to give up alcohol. If you're on drugs, I'd tell you to give up the drugs. You've got to make a decision. And make a decision before you leave this hospital, what you're going to do. So I decided I, after a few days, I went out of the kind of semi-intensive care, cardiac ward, into a, a normal room for a couple of days and there I my daughter I got my mobile phone and I actually more or less sold the airline from my hospital bed because I didn't want to walk out of the hospital with that that carried me into it and that was the stress of the aviation so it took that it took that serious kick in the backside for me to really learn and understand a little bit more about life and what's important in life. And, and are you still pine to have that? I mean, because there's, there's an adrenaline rush that comes from doing deals and especially, you know, investment bankers to me are the ones that probably have almost an addiction to, to the, the pulse, the, the deal, the, you know, the, not the closing dinner, but, but that, aha, you know, is, is, is that out of your psyche now? Um, it is to a large degree, but I, I, I still have a little bit of that in me. So I, I yeah. continue to, I suppose, fuel that to a degree, but it's not dominating my life. And there are other things that are, that I'm now a lot more interested in. I've six grandchildren. I'm so blessed. I see them very frequently, almost every day. Um, mm. I've got a lovely, nice boat, and we sail out in Galway Bay when the weather is fine and go fishing, or the dolphins playing and jumping up and around us. Um, I have start giving some time to golf. I I love writing and poetry, so I'm doing a bit of that. I'm learning music. I'm doing more traveling, just enjoyment traveling with my wife and family. So there are so many different things you can do rather than being living in a kind of a, a mono bubble of saying, oh, the next deal, the next deal, the next deal. And anybody or everybody who's watching this, let's ask them the question. Is there more to you than just the next deal mm -hmm. or the next adrenaline rush in that because there's different ways of getting it and there's a lot more to life than pressing buttons on wall street or wherever you do it so i, I again just sort of going back through the posts that you had on linkedin the other thing that i, I learned about which i'm really quite impressed with um and i don't know if this falls into something that gave you an adrenaline rush is, was your your drive to have 
as, a, as an independent senator in Ireland to push through uh, better laws and better regulation with respect to fraud and integrity and trust. And that word trust again coming up. Was there was there a rush out of that? How did that all happen in the sequence of, of your life from the heart attack, the airline? Uh, was was this is after? Like, yeah, well, what, what happened initially is that uh, in Ireland, you have 60, 60 senators. 49 are elected and our prime minister, or Fisher, as we call them, uh, has the gift to nominate 11 people that he thinks will make a reasonably significant contribution to, to our Senate. I was one of those 11 people invited by our Prime Minister, our Taoiseach, to uh, serve as a senator. And I took that on board and I gave it 100%. So I was never a member of a political party. I'd never been in politics. It was because of my involvement in entrepreneurship and also in my involvement in, I suppose, community and charitable stuff that the Prime Minister asked me or invited me to serve. So one of the things I did, one of the things I, we have, we really don't have, didn't have any perjury legislation in Ireland. Our insurance costs are going through the roof. And it was happening, unfortunately, not in the majority of cases, but in too many of the minority cases where you have somebody going in saying that, they slipped in a restaurant bathroom and now they're, they're claiming 20,000 euros or $20,000. And the insurance company more often would tend to pay out a lot of that without going to the trouble and hassle and cost of going to court. So I introduced legislation and I brought it through. There are 10 stages in legislation in Ireland, five in the upper house and five in the lower house. And I got support of every politician to introduce this legislation. So nobody spoke against the legislation and any of those 10 times when it was being debated. Actually, everyone supported it. So um, I introduced the legislation so that now, if somebody is on purpose telling lies in court, well, the judge can um, give them a fine of up to 100,000 euros, depending on the severity of it and or up to 10 years in prison. And that's a very, very significant deterrent. And the purpose of the purpose of this legislation or the, 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 the penalties in this legislation was not to enact the law, but it was actually to get people to think twice before they on purpose do a miscarriage of justice and tell lies in court to fabricate evidence. That was the purpose of it. And it's working very well. Just actually today in the newspapers and our nine o'clock news now is the first thing on the news saying that the legislation I introduced uh, was being enacted by uh, a judge in, in a court in, in Ireland here against somebody. Uh, so it is, being, it is being used. And how do I feel? I feel I made a difference. Was it, did I make a difference for the four years I spent in the Senate? I could have just been, what they say, a grunt a month. In other words, <laughs> up and, and, and to say a few words and then sit down and go up and say, but that's not me. What is me is, and it's a, it's a personal judgment thing. It's not that 
uh, I really don't mind that much what other people say, good or bad, about me. It's not, I've really little interest in other people, whatever they want to say for whatever reason, they can go and say that. I just want to be able to live with myself and, and that I, back to the initial, that, I've, that I'm making a difference. And if I feel I'm making a difference, life is well, well, well worth living. Absolutely. Hey, I can't help but think that anti-perjury legislation, if, if, it, if, if you could bottle it, and bring it across the Atlantic Ocean to say, say some anonymous country <laughs> could, could be Canada, could be somewhere uh, in North America. It might actually be quite helpful because there's certain. Absolutely. And the other thing about it, uh, 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 Brian, is that it's not only in a court of law. You can have a tribunal, for example, which is not, it's a quasi court. And if somebody is telling lies there on purpose to, change the course of justice, those penalties apply to them. Or if there is somebody in a foreign jurisdiction and get written evidence about an issue in our Irish jurisdiction, well, the perjury legislation extends to that person who's in another country as well. So it's, it's, it's quite extensive. So it is. And it's, um, it's really, 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 really important. And it is making a difference. Um, like in the, the news item or the newspapers, they don't say it was me that introduced the perjury legislation. And you know something, in many ways, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's there for everybody. Somebody has to start it and make it happen. But it's not about the person who started and made it happen. It's about the effects it has on cleaning up the law and cleaning up evidence. So you don't have contaminated evidence on purpose. And then a judge or a jury can make decisions based on accurate information and evidence that's given to them. You know, with such a a track record, you know, the things we've touched on coaching and, and making a difference for individuals and leaders, making a difference for society and, 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 you know, you're part of, of the global ecosystem. Are you still as optimistic when you're seeing some of, the, without getting all into the details with what's happening, it seems that there's been an erosion of, you know, trust. One of the, you know, core fundamental things, which, and integrity is, 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 have you become jaded or do you still retain that, that element of, optimism that this is just a speed bump uh no that's a choppy water out in galway bay yeah well we do have that too um (laughs) but you know choppy water can help you bounce around the place and choppy water can be interesting at different times because sometimes you need to understand what it's like in choppy water to understand the beauty of the can water so um but to go directly to your question, um, yeah, I do genuinely feel frustrated. I do feel disappointed at different times. Um, I do get, I suppose, a bit annoyed or upset at the uh, sense of greed and self-centeredness and ego that we do have in certain places 
uh, at certain times. I think that's really unfortunate. And uh, I, 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 I find it very, very hard to reconcile situations where directly or indirectly people are forced out of their homes and killed and shot and maimed and injured and, and all of that. I actually believe that our society as a whole has got a, a recalibration or readjustment to make, which I think it will. Uh, I think it's 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 in a very challenging situation now, not only from a global perspective, but within the country and within some communities. Uh, but I was just going to ask you: Do you feel that that erosion of trust has extended? Not it's not just politics, but is it is it is it an erosion that in business in boardrooms in in is is yeah is that- I, I I absolutely I think not necessarily in all of them uh, but certainly in some of them and those ones that it's in will be found out or are being found out sooner or later and are being pushed to more and more and more to the to the sideline and actually the companies that are in the long term, creating long term success are those who got a good trusting relationship with integrity with all of their stakeholders, because the stakeholders can say, oh, yeah, that's something there I like, something there I can trust. There are people there. I like what they're doing. They're doing the right thing. And I'm, I'm happy to be associated or linked or connected with that. So uh, but it takes a while for choppy waters to settle down into calm waters. It does not happen with the flick of a switch. It'll take a while for that to happen. But I believe, I do believe in people. I do believe in the goodness of people. And I do believe it will, I do believe it will come around. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your insight. Thank you for making a difference and um, take care. God bless you. Bye. Unplugged, unscripted, board leadership. This is Unboard.